You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. How many of you remember Garfield, the cartoon Garfield, maybe the comic strip? Well, in this small town in France, on the coast of France, near Brittany, there is a regular reminder of Garfield because on an almost daily basis for the last 30 years, little pieces of plastic that are from Garfield phones have been washing up on their beaches. You may have seen this story this past week because they finally found where these were coming from. Uh, There's a group that was constantly committed to keeping the coast clear, and so they posted this picture online of all of the Garfields that they had found on one day of their cleanup, hoping that somebody uh, would help them figure out what's going on here. And there was a farmer nearby that he saw this in his local news, and he remembered this great storm that had come through in the early 80s, and that it was right after this big storm that he had first found a Garfield phone piece near his home. And so he said, there's this inlet that's nearby and there's a sea cave. I wonder if it's, uh, there's the cache of these things there. And so what they did is they went into this sea cave and in the sea cave, they found a whole shipping container, the big metal box containers that are on shipping boats. It had fallen off of a ship in that storm and it had been carried into this cave and submerged. Now let's show you what the phones look like in their original state. And this is what the phone looked like back in the day. But over the course of 30 years, this whole shipping container of phones that's lost in this cave, when a a heavy storm surge comes in or it's an exceptionally high tide, it washes into that cave and pulls these phones. And because they're plastic, they last forever. And so they're out in the ocean for a while and then they get deposited back on the beach. And I saw that story this week and I thought that's a perfect analogy of what's happening all around us. Because right now, all around us, there are so many people that are struggling with anxiety disorders. Washing up on the coasts of Chandler, if you will. That would be nice if we had a coast here, wouldn't it? Washing up on the coasts of Chandler and in the coasts of our community and in our schools, in our families, are these, all these anxiety disorders. In fact, it's more widespread than probably most of us realize. There are 40 million Americans that suffer from anxiety. This is a widespread issue. And not only is it widespread, it seems to be more prevalent in younger people. One study found that there had been a 17% increase in the number of diagnoses of children, adolescents, children and teenagers who were struggling with anxiety. A survey of college counselors, the counselors who serve uh, on university campuses, said that 41% of them said that anxiety is the number one issue that they deal with, with the students that are coming in asking for help. And of those students that come in, that come in asking for help from counseling services on their university, 24% of them say that they're already on some sort of medication for mental illness. Now, I'm not saying that 24% of all college students, but 24% of students that come asking for help of college counselors for anxiety already are on a medication. So one in four of them are already taking some sort of medication, yet they are still struggling with their anxiety. Now, when you hear the word anxiety, it may be that you feel like, okay, I get that a lot of people are struggling with anxiety, but 
is that really that big a deal? I mean, is that something we really need to dedicate a whole Sunday to? And so when I say the word anxiety, I hope that you don't, say, I hope that you don't hear me saying nervous or shy or uneasy. Because when people struggle with anxiety, it goes far beyond that. And while we're watching this surge of anxiety in our nation, and we're watching this surge of anxiety, especially in younger people, we're also at the same time seeing this surge of suicide. And right now, suicide is the the second highest killer of children and youth. And so, as anxiety is coming to this peak, it's increasing in its prevalence, suicide is also increasing. That's the reason we're talking about it today. So when I talk about anxiety, I'm not talking about something that's it's uncomfortable. I'm talking about something that is dangerous. Now, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I'm a pastor. And so my job today is not to cure your, cure your anxiety. If you're here and you're struggling with anxiety, depression, or you have entertained thoughts, had thoughts of suicide, I want you to get in touch with a mental health professional. And we have people that we wholeheartedly recommend, that we feel good about recommending people to go see. All right? So please don't use this as um, a substitution for seeking professional help and counseling. But today, what I hope to do is to to look around and survey the coastland that is our community and see how suicide, anxiety, and depression are popping up. And I want us to go back into the cave of where this comes from. Just like they finally found the source, where are all the Garfield junk phones coming from? Where's all this coming from? Why is this happening? And I think that I can help us navigate from Scripture why this is popping up. You know, see, for me, while there are, are journals of academic research, and I've quoted stats from those, from those journals today, for me, so Scripture is sufficient, and Scripture is, gives us all that we need for life and health. And so that's what I'm going to point us to. I think an indicator of where this all comes from is the fact that the highest percentage, or the greatest majority of people who struggle with anxiety, struggle with social anxiety. Now, anxiety is when we are struggling to know like what's next, and social anxiety is no different. See, anxiety is, it stems from the unknown or the uncertain. You feel anxious when you don't know what's happening next, right? Now, what's interesting about that is that we kind of like for there to be uncertainty in every aspect of life except for our own personal experience. Here's what I mean. Nobody wants you to tell them the score of the Super Bowl before they can get home and catch up on the DVR, Right? I mean, we've had Sundays here at church. People walk in, the first thing they say is, don't tell me the score of the Cardinals game, right? Because I'm, I'm going to watch it later, right? The last thing that you want a friend to do is say, hey, have you seen that movie? The guy's dead the whole time, right? Don't want them to ruin the movie for you. We say it's ruining the movie if you tell me the ending, if you tell me how it works out, if you give me certainty, we want to walk into that experience with some uncertainty, some unknown of what's happening. But we don't enjoy that in our own personal lives. We enjoy it in sports, and we enjoy it in fiction, but we don't like it in our own personal experience, right? Because the stakes of how the movie turns out and the stakes of how the ball game turns out is very different from the stakes of how our life turns out. And so we have this anxiety because there's this uncertainty about how things are going to go how things are going to end up, where I'm going to to find myself. 
And social anxiety springs from this, I don't know how things are going to go. There's this uncertainty in my relationships and my social status. I don't know how people are going to respond to me. I first noticed this when I worked for a funeral home. Um, when I was in college, my last year of, of college, I worked at a funeral home, and I said, basically, I'll do anything that doesn't require me to be alone with the dead body. So I drove the van, and I drove flowers around, and I drove the hearse, and it was just me and the casket in the hearse, but, I mean, I was going somewhere, so that was okay. I just didn't ever want to be in a room by myself with the dead body. You can understand that, right? I'm not, I don't have, like, a weird phobia. That's normal, Right? And so that, that's the job that I had. And so the majority of my time, it was spent driving or serving as a host. And serving as a host was basically when there would be a visitation at the funeral home. It was my job to welcome people as they showed up, to open the door for them, to show them where to go. I was kind of like a greeter. And what I noticed is that there were many people that they would show up at the funeral home, they would get out of their car, and they'd have a smoke in the parking lot. Then they'd come up near the door, They'd have a smoke near the door. They'd look around. And the reason that I noticed is because I'd open the door thinking they're coming in. Nope, they're not coming in yet. Open the door, they're coming in. Nope, they're not coming in yet. What was happening is they had this great social anxiety of they're probably going to see people they haven't seen in a long time. They're going to see some old friends, old family. And this is a high-pressure situation where they're expected to be there. They're expected to show up. You don't show up for grandma's funeral. Like, you're going to have an awkward conversation with mom later, right? And so for this reason, people feel this incredible pressure, like, I've got to go to this thing, but I have this great social anxiety of what it's going to be like when I get in the door. So for that reason, here at our church, it's, it's, been, it's been so important to me that we make it as clear as possible that when people show up that they're going to be welcomed. And so we try to say in just a very overt, obvious way, like, we are glad that you're here. Because I know that there are people that for them to walk in the door is a big deal. And some of you, it was a really big deal for you to come here for the very first time. You showed up, on late, you showed up late on purpose, right? So that you'd just be able to slip into your seat. Or you showed up really early because you wanted to make sure you could get the lay of the land, Right? And you thought, man, I don't know what's going to happen in there. They're probably weird, right? Some of you, be honest with yourself. Before you ever showed up here, you looked at us online, right? To make sure that we're not strange, right? Maybe watch the service. In reality, in today's culture, the foyer has moved online, right? For the most part, we don't go to places that we haven't checked out online first, right? Whether it's a restaurant or something along those lines, um, and so it, it's, it's a major obstacle. It's a major hurdle. Because there are people who struggle with this clinical level of social anxiety, but there is some level of this in all of us. And the Association of Anxiety and Depression, they said that kind of the defining feature of social anxiety is this intense fear of being judged or not measuring up. It's this feeling of, I'm going I'm to get there and people are going to be like, why are you wearing that? Or... That's not how you're supposed to act. That's not the way that you should do that. 
And so we desperately want to make everyone feel that they're welcomed here because God's going to do a work on their heart. And one of our values is that we welcome everyone because we know that God can rescue anyone, that He can do a work in anyone's life. And so we want everyone to feel like they can belong and that they're welcomed here. And so when you've come in the door and our greeters welcome you and you come in here and I welcome you and maybe it's a little over the top, the reason that is is because I want you to know that we want you here, that we're glad you're here to alleviate any of that. I think there are many cultural factors that play into this rise of social anxiety. I think there are a lot of things that are happening right now in our world and culture that have caused this to become so prevalent. I think this is especially true for students and children. I mean, think about the things that have changed in the lives of kids and students over the last several years. I mean, when my grandparents went to school, it was a much smaller school. And everybody kind of had an idea of where they fit in that school, right? I mean, everybody could play on a ball team, just about. I mean, the football team, you needed like every boy in the school to be on the football team, to have a full football team. But now because our schools are so large and there are thousands of students, there are many students that they go to school and they don't really have a place that they fit. Because there are so many students that are more gifted at them at athletics, or so many students that are more gifted than them in drama, or so many students that are more gifted than them in academics. And so they're just kind of in the middle in every facet. They don't have this identity. The same is true in our family structures currently. The family, the nuclear family, is less stable than it has been in generations. There is more change that happens within families than ever before. And so these many factors, these cultural factors that are leading to this rise of social anxiety, especially for kids and students, I think that we could, we could talk a long time about all of that. And... and I'd, I'd love to talk more about why it's so important for your kids to feel the stability because the truth is the more stable your child, the, the more stable their experience is at home, at school, the more of a routine there is, the less fear that they'll have. And, I, and this is kind of counterintuitive, um, but the greater consistency and stability that your children experience in your own discipline of them will cause them to have less fear it'll cause them to have less anxiety. And so if you, if you give them clearly defined parameters and guidelines and rules, they know like there's going to be consistency. But if everything is constantly changing and everything is constantly fluid, they don't know what their experience is going to be like from week to week at home or in school. I had a friend... Um, this was years ago, and he was telling me about this decision he was going to make. And um, I said to him, I said, hey, man, I, 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 I'm just kind of worried how that's going to affect your kids. And this was his response. Kids are resilient. And like, okay, I get that. They're resilient. If you move your child to six different schools in the same school year, they'll probably be able to keep going to school. But that's not healthy, Right? And so that constant change, they might survive, but it's not going to bring about this consistency and this confidence. Now, I'm saying all that to say this, okay? 
Social anxiety is more prevalent and more complex today than it ever has been. But it's not a new issue. This is not new. We've had an issue with social anxiety since the Garden of Eden. Since the Garden, this has been a problem. When Satan comes to tempt Eve, do you remember what it is that he says to her? He, first of all, he kind of questions the rules. And then he says, the reason God doesn't want you to have that is because he knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him. And, he, and here is what Satan is tempting Eve with. You can raise your status if you'll eat this. You can raise yourself in your level, raise your status, raise your, your place by eating this. And there are a lot of temptations that that's how they approach us. If you'll do this thing, then you'll be in the club. If you'll do this thing, you'll be one of us. If you'll participate in this, you'll be one of us. And this is at play all over the place. It was even at play in the disciples. The 12 guys that followed Jesus for three years, they struggled with this. Luke chapter 9, verse 46 tells us that there was an argument among the disciples about what? Who should be the greatest? Like, hey, I know we're all in Jesus' close-knit friend group, but I'm his closest friend, right? I'm his best friend. I mean, this kind of sounds like fourth-grade stuff right here that's happening. And it doesn't just happen once. It happens again. We're told later in Luke 22 they're having this same disagreement. It gets so bad, the Bible tells us in Matthew 20, that the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and is talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, what can I do for you? And she says to him, when you come into your kingdom, can my two sons sit on your right hand and your left? Can they have the thrones on the right and the left? These guys asked their mom, or had their mom come and ask, will you make sure that our status raises up? And what's happening in the disciples is the same thing that happens in all of our lives. We struggle for status. We struggle for this place, for this identity. When I was in high school, I went to a small high school. And so because I went to a small high school, I was able to play basketball. I would not have been able to make the basketball team in a large high school. But because it was a small high school, I made the team. And I was the guy on the team that was, you know, like, you know, Daniel's not super talented, but he hustles. You know, like that was my identity. I was going to play hard on defense, and I was going to get rebounds. Like that was who I was, right? And... Um, Going into my junior year, because, because that was kind of the identity I had in my team and other teams knew that. I remember the first game of my junior year, I had really practiced hard through my sophomore year and that summer, really tried to improve. And the first game of my junior year, I'm starting, I'm kind of that fifth man in the rotation. And so we come down the first play on offense, and they're guarding everyone but me. They've decided the guy who should be defending me would be better off like helping everyone else be defended. So the ball is thrown to me, and no one is guarding me. And it was kind of a moment I was like, am I allowed to go and shoot? The, like, can I go score? This isn't who I am. I'm not the guy who makes the points. But I, I dribbled in, and I, I scored a basket. And I was like, wow, I just scored the first two points of this game. We go back on defense. We get a steal. We come back down. Guess what? They still aren't guarding me. I hit a jump shot. I've now scored the first four points of this game, right? And I'm thinking... Look at this. New MVP right here. I'm no longer the hustle guy. Third time down, they had somebody guarding me. 
Man, and for that, for that first quarter of basketball, I was loving like this new identity. Within the first half, it was kind of maybe midway through the second quarter, I ran back on defense, because I'm still that hustle guy, ran back on defense because they had gotten a fast break, and I stopped to jump and put my hand in the face of the guy that was shooting, and when I jumped, I stopped and jumped, my knee kept going that way, and I tore my ACL. And as a junior in high school, a few days later, we go, and they've done an MRI, and the doctor reads the MRI, and he explains that my ACL has been torn, and I'm, like, not concerned. Like, okay, let's put it back together. And then he says, after the surgery and rehabilitation, it's not likely that you'll play basketball again this year. I mean, I'm a a 17-year-old boy, and I cried right there in the doctor's office. Because that was my identity at school. Was I, I was an athlete. I was a basketball player. And I was not going to be able to do that for the rest of the year. It was taken away from me. And man, when somebody threatens our status or identity, when that is taken from us, man, it is, it is devastating. And we will claw for status and identity. The Bible tells us that in the, the final moments before Jesus is arrested, But Jesus says, when I'm arrested, all of you are going to scatter. And Peter says these words in Matthew 26, 33. He says, even if everyone else departs, even if everyone else runs, I will not leave. I will not be offended. I will be here. Jesus is arrested, and Peter runs. And then he's, he's outside where Jesus is being tried, and they're saying, hey, weren't you one of those guys that was with Jesus? And on three occasions, Peter says, no, that's not me. He's terrified. He's afraid. Now, that's why it's so powerful that what we're going about to read in 1 Peter 5, and if you'll turn to 1 Peter 5, if you want to follow along in your Bible, but we'll also have it on the screen. What we're about to read in 1 Peter 5 is written by that guy. So 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 He says, be clothed with humility. It's about halfway down in the verse. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. And then we could talk a lot about that right there. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. You know know what Peter just said there? He said, Humble yourself before the Lord and take your anxiety to Him. Take the cares of this world. Take the cares of your heart. Take the things that you were worried about. Cast them upon Him because He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. If you remember, we actually we talked about that last Sunday. We looked at that verse last Sunday. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Now, there are two things that I really want you to get a hold of that will help you appreciate what Peter just said. Because if you don't know these two facts, I think it might be easy for you to say, 
Well, that's, that's real easy for Peter to say, I should just cast my cares on Jesus and not worry about them anymore. It kind of sounds like when, so you, when someone's depressed and you just say, hey man, cheer up. And they're like, oh, I wish I'd thought of that. That's really good advice. I'm just going to cheer up and not be depressed anymore. Peter's not saying this. That he's not saying this trite. He's not saying it like, hey, just, just, just cast your cares on God and everything's going to be okay. Because at the beginning of this letter, Peter has some really important words for them. Now, the reason that Peter wrote this letter, 1 Peter, is a letter that Peter wrote. Because after he had made those mistakes in Jesus' trial, he becomes this church leader. He becomes this man who leads the church of God. And he writes a letter because there are Christians throughout Asia Minor that are being persecuted. And when I say they're being persecuted, I don't mean that because they're Christians, people say mean things to them on Facebook. I mean that because they're Christians, people are trying to take their homes, or they're not doing business with them, or they're taking their jobs. And because these people, some of them Jews, but many of them Gentiles, have become believers in Jesus, they're kind of cast out. And in that culture, in that day, your people, your group, your family, your tribe, that was everything. That was everything. And when they become Christians, they, they, they're walking away from that identity as a, an Orthodox Jew. They're walking away from that identity of being a Greek. And they're saying, I'm a Christian. And my king is not Caesar, it's Jesus. I'm following him. And that would be such a stark contrast that some of them would be put to death for that take. And so Peter is writing to people who are experiencing this. Talk about a social anxiety. They don't know if the people in their village, the people in their town, are going to turn them in, are going to ransack their home. This past weekend, we had our Indiana Free Baptist State meeting, and I got to see uh, Travis Penn, who's our pastor in Indianapolis, and he just returned from 10 days in northern India, where the predominant religion is Hindu. And, and there, there are Christians that because they have, they have put their faith in Christ... There's one specific pastor that's a part of this group that he was ministering with. The people in the village, the Hindu people came to him. They said, if you don't damage your home, we're going to damage the homes of the people in your congregation. Imagine if somebody came to me and said, Pastor Daniel, if you don't destroy your own home, we're going to hurt the people that belong to your church. What they did is they went and they got a bulldozer from someone in the neighboring town, and they bulldozed his home because he's a Christian and because people are li- leaving the Hindu faith to become Christians. That's, that's some major social anxiety. And Peter is writing to this group of people, and I want you to get a hold of what he says to them in the beginning of his letter, the way that he greets them. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God of our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us. What does that mean? Hath birthed us into a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying to them? He's saying, thank God that we have been born into a new family. Thank God that we've been given a new identity. Thank God that though we have left the people group that we used to belong to, that God has given us this new people that we are a part of. And the verse, next verse, he says, And in that we have this inheritance that is incorruptible, that will never fade, that is held on forever for us in heaven. Because we've been born again, when Christians talk about being born again, that's what we're referring to. We're born into this new family. We have this new identity. 
We have this new hope and we have this new inheritance that will never fade. And what Peter wants them to get a hold of and what he's thanking God for here is that because they're in Christ, they have an identity. They have a new identity that can never be taken from them. And it's only in Christ that we find an identity that will never be taken from us. If you're an athlete, that can be taken from you with an injury. Some of you, you've had your identity ripped away from you because of a divorce or because you lost your job or because you got arrested or because your friends pushed you away. And when you lost that identity, you were lost. Peter's saying, in Christ, we have this identity that can never be taken away. It is incorruptible. And whatever situation we walk into, we have that. The second thing that I want you to know about Peter is that Peter experienced something that gave him legitimacy in what he was saying. In Acts chapter 12, we read about Peter being arrested, going through this trial, and he's going to be executed. He's going to be put to death. And the church gathers to pray. And Peter goes to sleep that night, thinking the next morning they're going to execute him. Imagine that. I mean, he's sleeping. And in his sleep, an angel comes to him, wakes him up, and and Peter thinks that he's dreaming. And the, the, the chains fall off of him, and he's in the innermost part of the prison. If you read Acts chapter 12, there's an incredible story of how God frees him. And it's not until Peter is like walking through the city square that he's like, oh, I'm free. This is, this is real life. This is not a dream. And, and the thing that I love about this story is because now Peter's free, he goes to the house of his friends, which is where everyone's praying that he'll be released. And he knocks on the door, and a little girl comes to the door, and he says, let me in, it's Peter. And she's so excited that she runs in to tell everyone and leaves Peter still at the locked door, right? And I can just imagine in that moment, like, okay, God, like, you got me out of prison, but I can't get in the house. And Peter had that experience, that moment of his very life hung in the balance, and he just left it in God's hands. He trusted him. This was not something that Peter could say, was saying flippantly. He had walked through this. He had been on the eve of his death because of his stand for Christ, and God had protected him. And so he could say, with all types of weight in his words, cast your care upon the Lord, for he cares for you. You've been born into a family that brings with it an inheritance that will never fade. And the next chapter, in chapter 2, what Peter talks about, he talks about all these things that happened to the people of Israel, and he's telling them, you're a part of that history. You're a part of that narrative. You're a part of this grand thing that God is doing. That cannot be taken from you, and you're a part of this bigger thing that's happening. You've been given a new people. And when we realize that we've been grafted into the family of God, we've been born again into the family of God, that we're connected with all these promises that are in Scripture throughout the ages, that we are connected to believers who went to their death claiming Christ, that were burned at the stake, we realize that there's nothing that this world can do to take that from us. That it is proved to be faithful and true in the darkest of times, most difficult of situations. In Oregon where the Columbia River comes into the Pacific Ocean, it is one of the most dangerous ports of entry. It's called the Columbia Bar Crossing. 
Because the river comes into the ocean, and it's all kind of funneled into this one location, instead of it just being like this calm river going out into the sea, it's got all of this weight and pressure, and the conditions are horrible. I'm going to show you a picture here of what it's like when some of these large ocean liners that carry those big ship containers try to cross over. Since, since the 1970, over 2,000 ships have sunk in this location. Because it's such a dangerous place and the conditions can, can change suddenly, there is a group of pilots known as the Columbia Bar Crossing Pilots. And when an ocean liner a ship comes in, they load this pilot on a helicopter and they fly him out to the ship. And that helicopter takes him out to where the ship is and they lower him down with a tether and he guides the ship across the bar. He takes them across this troubled water. Peter says, humble yourselves. Now here's a ship's captain. He's brought his ship across the Pacific Ocean from Australia, from Japan. And he's just a couple miles from the port. And they say, hey, we're going to send somebody else out to bring it home. And that pilot gets dropped in, and he takes the ship across the bar because he knows how to navigate those waters. And what Peter's saying in 1 Peter 5 is, humble yourselves and allow the Lord to lead you through these waters. Humble yourselves. Let God be the pilot. And he'll navigate whatever it is that's causing you anxiousness. He'll give you an identity. He'll bring you home. And in Christ, we can have an identity that will never be taken from us if we'll let him steer the ship. That's what the story of Easter is about. It's about Jesus being helicoptered into our lives, into our world, so that he can lead us home. And so if you're scared or you're anxious, know that Jesus wants to step in and give you a new identity, and a new hope, and steer you across the bar. If you would bow your heads with me, we're going to just have a moment of prayer.